Welcome to the Mission Cleveland weekly podcast, encouragement and hope in a despairing world. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John. Jesus said, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Kevin, for those of you who don't know me. Um, And today is Trinity Sunday. And when figuring out who was going to preach on this topic, I drew the short straw. I think the thought was something like, Kevin's a theologian, let him risk heresy. He does it every day for a living. <laughs> so um, here I am. We're going to figure this thing out. Well, it's an important topic, so uh, we'll see if we can do this well. Because it's important doesn't mean it's easy to figure out how we should talk about, think about, pray to, or whatever, uh, the Trinity. It's not simple. It's not always straightforward. We believe in it, we confess it, but we often don't really understand it. In fact, there might be latent doubts and questions, which is something we shouldn't shy away from, by the way. Uh, God welcomes our doubts and our questions. We might wonder things like this. How does the Trinity make sense? Three persons, one being? What does that even mean? What value does the Trinity have for my daily living? How's the Trinity good news? These are all good questions. It's the last one that I want us to focus on tonight. How is the Trinity good news? And here I'm thinking of good news in the New Testament sense, as in gospel. Euangelion is the word we get. I'm a theologian, so we've got to use big words, you know, that aren't in English. How is the Trinity that good news? Before we dive in, I want us to pray with St. Augustine, that fourth century monk, pastor, bishop, and theologian. He wrote the first big book on the Trinity. He ends that book with a prayer. It's a rather long prayer, so I'm just going to read a section from it. Uh, to start us tonight. So let's pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Lord, our God, our one hope, listen to us, lest out of weariness we should stop wanting to seek you. But let us see your face always, and with ardor. Do Do you yourself give us the strength to seek, having caused yourself to be found, and having given us the hope of finding you more and more. Before you lies our strength and our weakness, preserve the one, heal the other. Before you lies our knowledge and ignorance, where you have opened to us, receive us as we come in, where you have shut to us, 
Open to us as we knock. Let us remember you. Let us understand you. Let us love you. Increase these things in us until you refashion us entirely. Amen. All right, how is the Trinity good news? In answer to this question, I want to point to two words, wonder and hospitality. Of course, God is infinite, which means there's much more to say, many more words that could be added to these two. In fact, there's more to God than we can say, which has at least two great benefits for us. First, we don't have to have everything figured out. If you're struggling to make sense of God intellectually, experientially, faithfully, you're in good company. You're in a great crowd of, cloud of witnesses. And God is the one who does not break bruised reeds nor snuff out smoldering wicks. You can trust God with your struggles. He is gentle and lowly. His yoke is light. And he gives rest to the weary. That's the first benefit. God's bigger than our capacities. There's space for wrestling, journeying, mystery, doubt, and God's compassionate response to all of that. The second benefit is if I mess things up, what would you expect? We're talking about an infinite God. And I'm just a finite thinker trying to talk about this, what one theologian has called the ultimate ground of being. So the second benefit is you can't blame me if heresy comes out. Should have come up with a third thing because we're talking about the Trinity tonight, but I failed. Theology jokes, y'all, they're the best. <laughs> so, all right, wonder and hospitality. How do these words answer the question, how is the Trinity good news? Well, as we look for an answer, we're going to do two things. Uh, the first thing we're going to do is what we in my business call theology proper. We're going to talk about God the nature of God, what kind of thing, what kind of being is God. And as we're working out wonder and hospitality, we're also going to think about um, how we ought to live. So we'll do the other side of this question, um, and that's the kind of practical, the ethics side. And what did you expect? I'm a Christian ethicist, so I mean, of course we're going to do some ethics. And I should have come up with a third one here, too, because it's a journey, but I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't think hard enough about this stuff, I guess. All right, let's start with wonder. Our lectionary readings today, we heard them. Psalm 29, Isaiah 6. One we didn't read is Revelation 4. I'll read it to you in just a second. Uh, and then, of course, uh, out of John, the Gospel of John. But if we consider Psalm 29 first, um, and I don't know if we can pull that back up. I, know I didn't ask anyone to do this ahead of time, so sorry, Trey, about that. Um, but I want you to notice a couple phrases. I'm just going to point them out to you as, as they come up. But, uh, so if we look at Psalm 29, I'm going to start in verse 3. It is the Lord. The Lord is doing a lot. So notice how God is described and what God does, he commands the waters, makes thunder, rules the sea. We're in verse 4 now. Mighty in its workings, that's the voice of the Lord. God has, or the Lord, Yahweh, has a glorious voice. Verse 5, breaks the cedar trees, makes them. What is them? I don't know, but it skips like a calf. Is that the trees? Is it something else? God's voice does crazy things. Divides the flames of fire, shakes the wilderness, makes the deer bring forth young. Strips the forest bare. In his temple all cry glory. When we think about Isaiah 6. Isaiah seems to have gotten a taste of God's awesome state. The scene in Isaiah 6 is both awful and captivating. Isaiah captures it. Woe is me is Isaiah's response, of course. There are seraphs. These are strange creatures. they got six wings. They're flying around. They're talking about the holiness of God. And then we didn't read this, but if you turn to John, or not John, John is the one who's responsible for the text, but Revelation 4, you know, this is a throne room vision again. And so this is chapter 4. I'm going to just read a little bit from verse 6 and following. In front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, crystal clear. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in the front and back. 
first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying something similar to the Isaiah passage. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Two pictures of heaven with uh, crazy looking angels, y'all. Have you ever seen the Precious Moments angels? Not those. My first Bible was a Precious Moments Bible. Um, so I've got, you know, clear in my head what angels are supposed to look like. Then I look at Isaiah and Revelation, and I'm scared because uh, they're not the Precious Moments. If you don't know what Precious Moments is, you got to look it up um, <laughs> at some point. That's not what we see in Isaiah and Revelation. It's something scarier than that. And in fact, at the throne in the Revelation account, there is lightning and thunder. Um, it's frightening. I think these passages speak to us of God's wonder. Okay, but what is wonder, you might ask? I'm glad you asked. Old Testament scholar William Brown describes wonder this way, as an experience of awe, perplexity, what he calls, and this is my favorite way of talking about it, bewildered curiosity. So wonder is bewildered curiosity. Wonder is reverent, he says, sometimes fearful. It's receptivity towards the other. It is the awakening of desire and allurement. It primes our interest and unsettles us, but draws us towards what is wonderful. Things that are wonderful draw us in like a gravitational pull, and they pique our intellect, and they inspire our desire. That's God, by the way, I and mean, this is what God does to us. Of course, God's created an amazing world in which other things inspire wonder in us, but as we turn to these texts in Scripture, God captures our wonder. So the three accounts of God in Psalm, the one we read tonight, but all of the Psalms, Isaiah, Revelation, these passages show us one who is, among other things, holy, sovereign, glorious, powerful, transcendent, and beautiful. In the face of God, we are at the same time bewildered and curious, fearful and allured. This wonder, because its focus is God, transports us beyond ourselves into mystery and the unknown, which inspires trepidation, because we're afraid of that which we don't know. But it also confronts us with order and holiness and welcome, which inspires inquiry. We're interested in our desire. Thinking with the Christian tradition, our concept of wonder expands in the face of the triune God, the one who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Here, mystery expands as does beauty. Our experience of bewildered curiosity is intensified and produces in us worship. Let's think about what is worship and what could be worthy of worship. We're talking about wonder and hospitality. We're going from wonder to worship to hospitality now. What is worship? Christian thinker Paul Moser offers a definition of worship that I've found incredibly helpful. It's how he defines it. Worship is unqualified adoration, love, trust, and obedience. To worship is to offer one's unconditional devotion, admiration, attachment, confidence, and submission. If that's what worship is, then we can see why worshiping the wrong thing would be so problematic. In fact, to offer the wrong person unqualified adoration, love, trust, and obedience would be ruinous to the one worshipped and to the worshiper. Whatever we worship must be worthy of unconditional devotion, admiration, attachment, confidence, and compliance. The object of our worship must be strong enough to uphold us and be genuinely worthy of that worship. Moser goes on to say that worship is... This is a fancy phrase, y'all. Maximally morally demanding. 
To be worthy of worship requires the highest moral status. That's what that means. Nothing less than perfect goodness would be the kind of worship, would be worthy of that kind of worship. So we need to ask, the God who inspires wonder in the record of Scripture, Psalm 29, Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, John 16, and beyond, of course, is this God worthy of worship? Surely God is wondrous. But is God strong enough and good enough to be the foundation and object of our unconditional adoration, love, trust, and obedience? I think in the Trinity, we get a strong yes to that question, an affirmative answer. Let's consider why. By thinking briefly about the nature of the Trinity. Although it may seem that we are far from our opening question, how does wonder and hospitality suggest the Trinity's good news? I'll tie the elements together soon. This homily is like an Agatha Christie mystery novel. All the solutions come in the last chapter. Like Poirot, right? What is it about the Trinity that suggests that God meets the maximal moral demand of worship? We find the simple but not simplistic answer in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. So the first letter of John, chapter 4, verse 8, where John records God is love. God's essence, that is the core of who and what God is, is love. In theological history, Christians have unpacked this claim in terms of the Trinity, what constituted the very being and existence of God from eternity is that God the Father loves God the Son, God the Son loves God the Father, and the love that binds them together is God the Spirit. Another way to think of this is that in God we have a set of perfectly loving relationships. There is no selfish love because there are three persons who share a single essence and who mutually, equally, and eternally participate in giving and receiving love. Okay, we're in the thick of theology now, y'all. As soon as you start talking about essence and eternity, we left behind the, the milk, and we're moving into the thick stuff, right? It's dense, but you're up to the task. I know you are. So far, we've said God is love. God's very triune nature is a set of loving relationships. In God, we have perfect, selfless, other-oriented love. The Father for the Son, the Spirit, the Spirit for the Father and the Son, and the Son for the Father and the Spirit. Well, this is... Surely wondrous enough to inspire our bewilderment and curiosity and, of course, worship, it gets better. The intertrinitarian love, which is always dynamic and active, it's never static and never merely reactive, flows out from God in creative grace. We get that story of creative grace in Genesis 1 and 2, but not just there. Two other great creation accounts in Proverbs 8 and Job 38. Look those up later. They're fantastic. There's an overabundance of love in the life of the triune God, which manifests itself in hospitality. What's hospitality? It's making room for something other than God. And God does this in order to share in that creation, his, to share with that creation his life. So God literally makes space for something other than God to exist and the, out of love, and that love essentially and always invites all creation to participate in the life and love that is inherent to God's nature. Because this is God's nature essentially and eternally, it couldn't be otherwise. So we offer unqualified adoration, love, trust, and obedience. The triune God is the only one worth this worship because the triune God is the only perfectly loving being. If God were only all-powerful or sovereign or almighty or ruling all creation, that would be wonder-inspiring. And we would be prudent to obey. But mere power and authority doesn't command our full and unconditional adoration, love, and trust. Think for a second. 
Take a tyrant as an example. This person may be powerful. We might be wise to obey a tyrant. But a tyrant is not worthy of genuine worship. They don't deserve our adoration or trust. If we think a bit on this, we see that the other attributes of God were God to only have, say, omnipresence, not being limited by space and time, or to be only all-knowing. Well, God would be bewildering, and God would inspire curiosity. But those attributes alone would not make God worthy of worship, at least in the sense of unqualified adoration, love, trust, and obedience. Rather, it is God's fundamental and core nature as perfect love that makes him worthy of worship. And in this way, we say that God's love is logically prior to his other attributes. That is, all the other attributes of God funnel through the prism, to mix metaphors now, to funnel through um, the attribute of love. It's this character of love that makes God, the Father, Son, and Spirit wondrous and fully worthy of our unconditional adoration, love, trust, and obedience. Okay, let's catch up. We're getting close to being done. The Trinity is good news. We see this first and partly in the wonder that the Trinitarian God inspires through his holiness, sovereignty, creative grace, and especially in, the, in God's Trinitarian nature of love. Confronted by God in the text of Scripture, in prayer, in our liturgy, wherever, we are bewildered, awestruck, a bit fearful, and curious. This is good news for us because the triune God is not static, content to merely receive worship while enjoying the inter-Trinitarian relations of love. Now, our God, in perfect and infinite hospitality, opens the very life of God to us, first making room for us in all creation to just exist, then inviting us in to participate in that life-giving love. And that's a fundamental part of the gospel. God so loves that he creates the world. Then he sends his son into the fallen and disordered world to redeem that world. Those who cling in allegiance to God's son... The Father, by the seal of the Holy Spirit, makes that person into a co-heir with his Son. This is the good news. God's ecstatic love, fully given and received by each person of the Trinity, reaches out to us, both giving us existence, which is itself a measure of God's being, and by the Spirit, conforms us to the image of God through his Son. By a Trinitarian movement, we are made children of God and given equal status with the Son. We are co-heirs. We're stitched to Jesus Christ. The Trinity is good news because Father, Son, and Spirit provoke wonder, our bewildered curiosity. This in turn leads to worship, our unqualified adoration, love, and trust of Father, Son, and Spirit. The Trinitarian God is the only foundation that can uphold and be worthy of such worship because Father, Son, and Spirit are eternal love and perfect goodness itself. This by itself is probably enough for us. We'll probably close it down now and just spend the rest of the evening thinking about it, at least probably. But in God, we find the only end capable of establishing and sustaining our existence. The gospel is even bigger than what I've been describing. That is not simply the only being worthy of worship. Father, Son, and Spirit invite us in all creation to partake in the divine life. We're invited to rest in God. And more, we're invited to become like God in our becoming like Christ. And this is accomplished through the work of the Spirit, our advocate or helper, as our translation read tonight, the comforter. This is from John 16. This is the one we heard about today in the gospel. The whole of God's nature as Trinity is hospitality, making room for the other and inviting others to share in the source of life. Let's move a little bit 
from that dense theology stuff into some of the practical stuff now. I think that theology is important. Each week, our liturgy that we practice here together is aimed to orient us in worship towards this picture of God. We begin with confession. We confess not because God is retributive or vindictive. Rather, we confess because in our confession, we confront and turn from that which corrupts and spoils life in true life. We move away from inhospitality and corrupted love. And as the absolution reminds us, we're encountered by Father, Son, and Spirit whose disposition towards us is holy and always one of invitation and love. It's an invitation to become like God, which requires, which requires of us shedding whatever is ruinous to a life of self-giving, other-oriented love. In trust, by our confession of sin, we turn ourselves over to God, who is perfectly trustworthy and restlessly active in perfecting our natures as his image bearers. We begin our liturgy with confession, and we culminate our liturgy in Eucharist, communion. This is the focal point, the crux, the goal of what we do together each week. All aspects of the liturgy are moving us toward God, opening us to, to space to encounter the Trinity. And it is in Eucharist that we are given an explicit invitation into God's life. Trinitarian hospitality is made tangible by our receiving the body and blood of Jesus. The gospel, the Trinitarian work of love, is graciously enacted each week in our coming to the Lord's table. We are invited as God's very children, made heirs with Christ by God's never-ending desire to share God's self with all creation. We partake of bread and juice, and we do so in, in, in anticipation of a future heavenly feast. The good news of the Trinity is evidence for us every week in our Eucharist liturgy. It's more than mere symbol. The Father, Son, and Spirit are actively and really present, extending hospitality and giving real grace and making us ever more into God-likeness. Here's the challenge or the practical application. Our task is to go from here, having been encountered by the triune God in confession, worship, and Eucharist, and carry out our vocation of Christ-likeness by living lives marked by self-giving, other-oriented hospitality. Our task is to live out the good news of the Trinity, to be people marked by inviting love, opening our lives to others that they may share in it, and inviting others to share in the life of God. There are a host of concrete ways to do this. One way, maybe get dinner with someone you don't normally do, since we're not doing dinners together twice a month. Opportunity to grab dinner with someone else. Befriend and spend time with that socially awkward person. They need friends too. I'm the socially awkward person, so we need friends too. Uh, reach out to the estranged family or friend. That's hard. I mean, I know. The key, and whatever it is, to imitate God by opening space in our lives for others. Let's pray. God of wonders, I pray that in the coming week you would encounter us and inspire moments of bewildering curiosity. Bring us the faithful times of unqualified adoration, love, trust, and obedience. And as we move in a few moments to Eucharist, meet us here in the elements. Feed us the true food that will, with the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, you are living out your image as ministers of hospitality. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Speak truth to my heart. Thanks for listening. Join us at the Mission Cleveland next week.
must betray me.